This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. On today's episode, I chat with Hugo White. Hugo is a musician, producer, my husband, and wait for it, I actually wrote this, father of our son. I met him aged 14 on Windy Wandsworth Common with his cheeky smile and clunky BMX and was immediately intoxicated by his mysterious, curious brain and charm. I basically really fancied him, okay? Hugo is one of those annoying people that anything he tries, he manages to just do. He naturally rises to any challenge and not just succeed. He does it with intention, pride, style and flair and probably with a beautiful cheeky grin across his face. He has that way of making everything look effortless and cool. So when the challenge of postpartum psychosis presented itself to us, Hugo was tested and did not back down. He somehow managed to have the skills equipped in his back pocket to navigate his way around such emergency trauma. He was calm, collected, and yes, of course, he remained cucumber cool the entire time. Crisis was not something he was going to hide from. Hugo was pretty much thrown into whirlwind single daddom overnight, doing feeds and changes alone. When I was hospitalised in a psychiatric ward, our underweight son was just three weeks old. Not that taking care of a newborn is anything anybody can ever fully prepare for. This was not something he had prepared for doing alone. I mean, he'd never held a newborn. This was a person who once made me a cheese and salt sandwich, who asked me as we were going into hospital if Jet was going to be born with teeth. He was massively out of his comfort zone. Hugo found himself driving night after night through snowstorm, blizzard, the deep, dark, cold wind and rain, just so that I could see my baby. Whilst he was practically juggling keeping our child alive, he was dealing with my illness, which symptoms included suicidal thoughts, severe depression, anxiety, mania and fear, but also delusions and paranoia, many of which were targeted at Hugo. Hugo's patience was unflinching and love for me constant. He took the illness for what it was, an illness, and believed that I would get better. His love truly was the medicine that fixed me, and the experience we've gone through together has only cemented our true love that is built on 20 years of history. It is my pleasure to introduce Hugo White. Thank you so much, Hugo, for taking part. I'm going to introduce you properly when you're not here so I can actually tell you in real life how amazing I think you are and all the great things that you've done, even though you know that. So you are my husband and my best friend, my hero, probably my saviour as well. But also you've been definitely, without a shadow of doubt, the hardest guest to pin down to get to do this podcast. I mean, you live with me. I mean, and... I'm, bu- I'm very busy. Oh, are you? Okay, because it's like, we've got actually some really busy people on this podcast, but nobody seems to be busier than you. You are squirmy. 
you are seriously squirmy. So <laughs> the fact that you're even here, it's Sunday. We've had to literally throw Jet in front of the TV to be able to do this. For me, I think partly what made it so, I guess, cruel, the illness, was because we felt like we had it taken so much great crying already but so much for us to get to the point that we had got to for then this avalanche this tornado to happen to us just seemed that little bit extra it felt too good to be true and then almost as if fate had gone gotcha Mm. I mean it was totally unexpected wasn't it it really was we didn't we really didn't think that was around the corner how did you feel when I first said to you I'm pregnant Excited, I think, after the initial shock. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really shocked. And I remember you were like Googling a million times, like, can a positive That's pregnancy true. We test... We didn't believe to do it. We were like, we're like, it must be more complicated than this. Surely you can't just be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, there's surely some, we're missing something here. I know it says you're pregnant, but what... <laughs> We had a really traumatic labour. I mean, nothing had prepared us for that and ended up in an emergency caesarean and things declined for us from there. Now, so I guess things started going really wrong with me mentally. When was the point when you knew that I wasn't normal? Mm, When I say normal, I mean myself. I think it took a long time because of how traumatic the labour was. I realised quite early on in the labour that it was going to be like a long recovery to get past it anyway, even to get past that event. We got back from the hospital and we were like kind of running over what had happened and realising how traumatic it was. And it just didn't feel like something that would just get by quickly. It didn't feel like in a week's time we were going to be feeling really good and happy and like it, it didn't feel like that to me. Like, I wanted to get the doctor's notes and all that stuff and, like, find out what happened and, like, kind of, like, ask questions as to why all that stuff happened. And I think someone did kind of plant the seed, didn't they? They were like, you can get an inquiry into this or whatever. I did want to do that. I kind of felt angry about it. Yeah. But actually that was overridden because, you know, you were obviously, there was kind of more to it Mm. that you weren't feeling well. And actually that became something that was actually irrelevant. It didn't really matter what happened in the past. We had to deal with how everything was now. I feel like that area there is actually the gap that we don't really speak about, probably because, as you, you've you kind of preempted, is that what happened to us was so huge on the, you know, what was within sight, that now when we talk about it, we forget about both that bit. When we'd kind of gone through this sort of house of horrors, of course I was the patient in that way, but we'd gone through it together and I really felt like that. We'd kind of gone through this on this roller coaster ride together, mm-hmm. and then I fell out of that roller coaster and went onto my own. <laughs> it was together. It was together, but it wasn't. I was there and experiencing the same thing, but not actually experiencing the like physical side of it. Yeah, that you experienced. You know, I couldn't imagine experiencing that myself. Mm. I remember those bits you saying though, in a way that you thought it was. I was so like off my face on medication, you know, when we were told, for example, that Jet was severely underweight, I was kind of fine, wasn't I? Like I was was so aware away with it by then, but you had to really try and digest that, what um, that might mean. Yeah, I mean, there was 
so many times in that time where we thought something was wrong or the you know with the like heartbeat stopping and that it felt like every hour or something was like another thing of like potentially there's this massive problem that for me was there was a bit of a result of it because after the cesarean and the midwife like when you just after like they lift him out of you and then they put him on the table and like do all the checks that they would do or whatever and the woman was like to me because she was there with us so she knew all the things that were worrying and she was like he's totally fine like because he'd he'd like starved or whatever so yeah been starving that did actually feel like that he was fine you know I think that was that was also a big worry isn't it during it as well was the worry that he wasn't going to be fine which I think you must have worried about I think it was too much for you to comprehend worrying about going through it everything you were going and then to put more on it of actually him not being well I think potentially wasn't the medication it could have been you just Checking, checking out checking out and going actually right. there's the limit to what I can cope with and that's past the limit so I'm not going to cope with it mm. or not going to be able to like process it there's know. a moment I actually mark like I feel like there was an actual moment on the bed where I sort of just levitated out because I wasn't actually really on that much medication at that point anyway really pain relief I'm no. referring to yeah, I just not. sort of like felt like I just left the room I was like as you say it was almost every hour we were just thrown into like a new dimension of darkness and worry and panic so to keep context it was 40 weeks so two weeks overdue we thought that everything was going to be as planned but my placenta had actually been failing so our little boy had starved inside me basically and come out with extra skin so that we were told that he was small potentially chronic and not much else which must have yeah. been i mean all these things were running through which my mind like, which was, yeah which was, and none of this stuff was explained so we thought it was like it was kind of like he was just not going to be alive or something. It was that kind of... Or have a, a condition that would last his whole life that we would have to get our heads yeah. around really quickly. When you go from like you spend what, however many months it is seeing midwives and talking and going back and getting scans and talking to people and, and just to constantly be told everything's fine and like the midwife's going, yeah, this is like great, it's completely, you know everything's exactly being and then to suddenly go within like the space of hours everything suddenly be like people coming in and going there's problems here there's problems here and it's like hold on a minute what like where did this all these problems come in there like has no one been doing checks and stuff oh, no. like that people the midwives are saying and we're like what like we've been doing everything and I no know. one said anything If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. We don't know yet exactly what causes postpartum psychosis. There's not enough research no. to say yet, but they have said that a traumatic labour, caesareans can also give you more chance to experience it. So we had this really traumatic birth. We were given this brand new, tiny, skinny, skinny baby that wanted constant feeding. 
So this was like 10-ish on uh, Thursday night and then we were put into the ward. It felt like at the time anyway, it was, for, it was people that have had complications with their births that need to stay in hospital for longer, basically. They're just quite busy wards with just lots of people that have been through <laughs> lots of trauma, trauma to whatever degree. Totally. The bed next to us was someone from overhearing that had twins and lost one and uh, you can av avoid really hearing how horrible it was and how upset people were or whatever scenarios they were in. And, and babies that were screaming, that would just wouldn't stop screaming, you know. See, because that for me was where the horror, like, really... I, I don't know what went through my mind to think that after I had him, I'd be able to rest for a minute. And then every so often I was on so many, you know, um, injections and jabs and vitamins. Anytime you try and get a second piece anyway, you're kind of woken up, the curtains pushed open, someone's checking you for this, doing your heart rate and all the rest of it. I still remember thinking that it was, that was horrible and uncomfortable, that whole situation. But I don't... I felt then that you'd probably be all right. So when was the first moment you thought something was not okay? I think it was like, it felt like a constant kind of questioning, really. And I was just kind of trying to help find, like trying to work out what the, what it was. Or Had what I said to you was. that I don't feel... Yeah, you didn't feel right from pretty much the moment we got back. That's why it's so difficult to detect, really, isn't it? Because in my mind, it made complete sense. I wasn't going, oh, she's not acting like herself. Like, this is a, could be a big warning sign or a big problem. It was a bit like, I didn't expect you to be acting like yourself because of, of everything, you know, in that situation. It's like, that doesn't seem that, like, that would be that unusual. Like, feeling a bit frantic and a bit worried and have anxieties about the situation or what what do you do with, you know, with a new baby or questioning whether you feel well, you know, because you probably wouldn't feel that well. And many people, I suppose, go through trauma and they don't have psychosis, you know, otherwise people would be running around having psychosis everywhere. Yeah. So there's definitely, there's a trigger somewhere, isn't there? Or there's a point where it changed. To me, that point was gradual and it probably was exaggerated by the longer you didn't sleep. So like after maybe two days at home, we were going to the doctors every day and saying something was wrong. This is something I can't always remember was sometimes a lot of people will mention the doctor's visits to me. It's like saying, how could this have not been diagnosed? How could this have not spotted? And I'm pretty sure that I did tell various GPs that we saw on numerous occasions, of course, I'm not pointing the blame with anybody. It's also not helpful for me to do that. But you came to all of them with me. I feel like I did tell the truth. I mean, of yeah. course, I had shame and all the new normal scary things people have when they're experiencing an illness, especially for some reason, a psychological illness. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like I was saying the racing thoughts, the insomnia, the yeah, panic. I think so. I'm, that, I mean, that whole thing was quite weird wasn't it because when I think when we look back on the notes some one of the GPs did say it might be the start of a early signs of, psychosis. yeah but I for some reason don't remember being told that or being told what it was so, so I probably wasn't I remember one uh, one GP but this is probably by the end now that said that 
the way I was feeling were potentially the baby blues and they could go either way. They could turn to depression or they could turn into psychosis. But it felt like as soon as she said that word, even that my brain kind of tugged around that. And um, do you remember that GP visit we had with the schizophrenia where she said not to tell me that the tablets could treat schizophrenia? And that was pain on my mind. So this is like all really interesting to me because it's like with the kind of the anxiety when it works in that way that sort of bleed into intrusive thoughts Mm -hmm. and psychosis where once someone, you know, at that point you could have told me I was a chocolate biscuit and I would have gone, oh, maybe I'm a chocolate biscuit. Like that's how Mm. insidious and fertile they kind of are. But I remember uh, one of them saying to me, you know, have you sort of heard a voice and turned around and there was no one there? And I was like, no, I haven't, but I didn't feel like I was far from that. And I sort of do remember trying to express that. Yeah, I think you were pretty honest about it I feel like uh what I kind of took away from it well, generally people then just wait and see how you feel and it was, that was kind of the general consensus and then there was a thing of like oh you could go on antidepressants but that's it's a bit early to do it that was pretty much what I came away from that the doctor's things with I definitely feel looking back on it like it would have really helped me at some point in that maybe eight visits to GP, there, yeah. there could have been, someone could have said to me, have a read of this leaflet, this is something that could happen, that can be triggered, you know, like, uh, this is basically postpartum psychosis. If I'd been given the bullet points of that, even without you being given it, if they were worried, it would have worried you. And actually that would have probably been all that we needed to pick up on it quicker, that it was something more than whatever they were saying baby blues or postnatal depression that felt weird to me that we didn't have that the simplicity of a list of like 10 symptoms I, i just feel like they were obviously creeping in at that time but there was no way for me to to know what that or you or anyone around us to know what it was because no one had given showed us that list and eventually i did get sent a list of symptoms by a friend so i'll just read out what i got sent Symptoms can include hallucinations and hearing voices, delusions, thoughts or beliefs that are unlikely to be true, a manic mood, talking and thinking too much or too quickly, feeling high or on top of the world, a low mood, showing signs of depression, being withdrawn or tearful, lacking energy, having loss of appetite, anxiety or trouble sleeping, loss of inhibitions, feeling suspicious or fearful, restlessness, feeling very confused, behaving in a way that's out of character. Postpartum psychosis is a serious mental illness that should be treated as a medical emergency. If not treated immediately, you can get rapidly worse and could neglect or harm your baby or yourself. It's like an A&E job, isn't it? It's not really a go home and sleep on it. It's not sleep on it. And it's not maybe try some antidepressants that might kick in in two weeks. Six weeks for some people. To go weeks of like numerous GP visits and not be given that just feels kind of insane it, it wasn't like a, something that no one has ever heard of and by the time I actually managed to speak to because it took us ages before I, we'd even got to a point where we actually or even where I knew that it was like okay we need to speak to a psychiatrist that's who we're looking for now we're not looking for a GP we're looking for a psychiatrist and that was hard enough to get hold of someone the NHS one we could speak to in four days, I think. Yeah. So I was like, we just need to hold on for four it was, days. And it was the appointment was on the Monday, I think. Yeah, and it got to... Saturday. And then the next day it was like, 
it was starting to get clear it was like we're not going to be able to wait for this appointment that's when I called a private and as soon as I spoke to it was late wasn't it I remember it was Saturday night yeah and I I just read the list of symptoms an hour before and just gone like immediately kind of like dropped tools and everything like right this is like I didn't I had no idea this this was how like what we were dealing with we need to be in the hospital or whatever the thing so it's I didn't even need to explain it to him. It wasn't even a thing, really. He was like, yeah, you, you need to come in. You would like just gone, apparently gone to sleep, but you were pretending to go to sleep. Just doing what I always did and closed in my that, eyes. In yeah. that weirdness of my time. My mind was just racing, yeah. In my mind, I was like, she's asleep. So look, actually, a couple of hours sleep, we've been like, it's been three days trying to get you to go to sleep. And so the fact you were asleep. And he said to me, if it was my wife or daughter, I wouldn't wait. Which I obviously already knew how severe it was, but it was that point a little bit that was just like, how did I not even know what this was until now? And I'm being told that it's like, as a psychiatrist, you wouldn't even wait while someone was asleep. Like, that's not even safe. I mean, I can't explain as well for when you say to me to wait until Monday, having been in that place that I was now, thinking about now how much I enjoy the weekends, even in this current climate with you and Jet, and I just want the most out of them, and time is so different to me now. I try not to get upset, but it's like... I could not have waited. You know, a listener to this might be thinking, waiting for what? It's like, just sit there and wait. It's like when you're consumed by those thoughts, it's like, I read, read this thing recently where it said trying to describe depression or anxiety to somebody who's never experienced before. It's like trying to describe what it's like to drown in a shower. It's mm-hmm. like you you can't understand it, but when you're living it, you are drowning, mm-hmm. you know, you're being chased, you're being watched, you're dying completely and every second is lost for millions of hours and it changes all the time it's you never get used to a sort of plane or mood there was like probably the two days before that it was of now feels even more it's just like i can't believe we weren't in hospital earlier really because it was obvious like you were delusional but i didn't even really know what delusions really were or what they meant or and so it was like so that was all new to us. You had complete delusions. It was so clear they were delusions. It's like, that's what annoys me. It's like we'd even, we'd literally took Jet to a hospital. Oh, he had to have a jab on to the have day his before. Near jab. Yeah. We saw whatever doctor that was. A midwife, there, yeah. A midwife to do that. We saw another midwife, the one that was involved in the birth. Yeah. You were having delusions. I was clearly not I well. was literally I like, we were doing anything we could to try and like, maintain some sort of reality and even after that we came home not knowing that's the thing it all seems like about it it feels hard to me to try to talk about it without a really kind of like strict frame of time because there's so many events in like such a short space of time and actually all of them are like fairly important what i should also say for while we were going through all of this we had a newborn (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was underweight, that needed feeding all the time. And I remember, never forget you saying to me the most shocking thing for you, more shocking than you finding out that I had all this, the hardest bit for you was that you said that when we were young, you know, you always thought that I would be a good mum and, and just not seeing me be with our baby how you thought I would be. Yeah, I definitely had that in that time, yeah.
You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. So then I got hospitalized. You were so not with it, right? You weren't in the same reality anymore. You weren't living in the same situation as everyone else. Your mind was like on a loop of like negative thoughts or delusions that you'd just basically repeat over and over and as soon as one, and, and then it would shift into another delusion. And like, so what did we do? We just got you in called, the car. Wait, I dad. remember you packed me a bag. Yeah, I packed you a bag when I was on the phone. The guy, the the psychiatrist was like, "Can you pack? You have to pack a bag because we don't know." I said, "Look, how how long for?" And he's like, "Well, at least a few nights." And then I think I don't actually I don't remember you emptied the bag. I emptied the bag and repacked it. I didn't even bring a toothbrush. I don't know what I put in there. I put a toothbrush in there. Did you? Oh, you would have done. I mean, I don't know what. I literally don't know what even. And so then, and and you and my sister, you drove me. But you were you you weren't. It wasn't like it was a fight. You were just like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I was happy. Not happy, that's completely the wrong word, but um, they have said that many times when people it's are... Relief. It's relief. The first yeah. feeling you feel when you get to that imagine, hospital yeah. is relief. because, And it's not even just that you're going to get upwards from here because, I mean, I had never had a suicidal thought in my body before, but this was like... The suicidal thoughts were very much still there. I still probably thought I'm going to die, but I didn't have to try. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to put on a face to make me feel like I was okay. Like mm-hmm. I could just be exactly how yeah, the truth yeah. was out, and there is mm-hmm. a real relief in that. In that, like yeah, hitting yeah. that rock bottom. So you guys everyone drove else me. Knows you're not not well. Yeah, so. everyone knew. Yeah, and my illness was so bombastic. And but I'm grateful for that because it's that sort of low level level depression that you see women having to go through after they've had a baby when you still have to go to play group and you know mm-hmm. make the lunch and everything and you're struggling and mine it was clear for all to see so mm. it, all hands on deck basically mm. with that oh, I'd spoke to the hospital and they'd said like so you will go and we'll do this assessment and then we'll wait in the room and then the doctor so I kind of I felt like I had some sort of grasp of what it was and actually I felt the same not I mean it's as scary as it was I felt a relief that we were actually able to do something about it but I mean, it, it was it was obviously a bit of a strange thing to do, wasn't it? It was middle of the night. It was leaving Jet at home. I mean, my my dad had come to stay with him. I think if we sat with the first doctor that came when we got like we were sitting on the bed in the room, it was obviously like kind of a room you would be staying in. 
and um, the doctor was like kind of asking us a little bit and we were sitting on the bed with you and we talked about, you know, said like, this is what's happened or this is like thing and you said a bit and then she was like, or maybe you said, would you like them to go and Laura and you were like, yeah, can can they leave? And that freaked us out because we'd always felt maybe wrongly because actually and now I know you were there was more to it that you were hiding from me but at the time I felt like you were sharing stuff with us so then to go like oh now she's telling the doctor stuff she doesn't want us to hear and that just felt so like alienating and scary and it and also it felt like you talked to them because bearing in mind you were talking at a million miles an hour you sat in there with them for about an hour so we just sat there just like in a, in a kitchen somewhere what was it like for you and Daisy once you left me there? Uh, I don't know. I think we just cried in the car. Um, oh, the whole thing was... Mm. It was also the reassuring, though. We, were, we did feel reassured that you were there. For me, that was the strangest. I mean, God knows how strange that was for you waking up there. But for me, waking up at home with Jet and without you there was like, that was pretty scary. I mean, I know no one knows the expectation, but being, you know, 31 years old with a three-week baby... Were we that young? (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) You'd never, you know, you'd never looked after a newborn before. You've just come from being like on tour for years like in a band like staying up all night and whatever it is like suddenly you're thrust into this like domestic world of newborns and nappies and all of this but and then your partner is in a psychiatric ward you're on your own like obviously you being in hospital was not the situation was not natural it wasn't like I just wouldn't be practical I think it's almost like a human instinct isn't it in that thing to like everything kind of goes to one side and you focus on you know like now's like a time where it's just you have to fully deal with everything and I remember everyone at the um hospital the people in my ward they would just be obsessed you'd come in with Jet and it would just be like you'd get so much attention yeah that was weird actually taking him there that felt weird and actually, you know... It was weird. It was weird talking to you there. I know. Because you changed every day. Like <laughs> different. Like, it's very hard to know where you were at. All day I'd prepare for your visits in the evening and, like, how I was going to be and be like, today be okay, like, today be challenging because you're trying to get the truth out of him. You don't trust mm. him. Remember, today be like this. Try and get this out of him. And that's really sad, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd had to go to group therapy all day long every day, as you know. I just sit there ruminating, cooking up all these delusions, conspiracies of everyone stealing jet. And then in the night, I'd be like, this is your opportunity, you know. It wasn't until I let myself truly, like, buckle and fall to my knees and say, please, like, I know you're going to take him. Like, please just don't. And only then when I told you what my big doubt and fear my main kernel of like what was killing me that was when it was met with the biggest warmth and that's when you totally like spoke to me when all the facades and all the kind of masks had stopped and I could just be my like not myself but tell you what was actually going on yeah 
that's when I really started to improve. Mm, because you were, what, because you were hiding from me. Definitely. How much you thought I was going to, yeah, that's why, you know, our experience of that time is so different, isn't it? We weren't experiencing the same scenarios, although we were sharing the scenarios, they weren't the same. You were experiencing something further from reality. And I guess I was experiencing reality yeah. <laughs> with someone Very that was cool. delusional. It's really scary. It's really scary. And anyone that tries to tell you that's not what it is, you just think they're just telling you that for some reason. Yeah. So you lose all instinct and all trust. I think one thing I'm with the stereotype as well that I see of like, you know, women with postpartum psychosis, it's that, you know, you it's all against the baby. But do you remember when you opened my um, notebook and I had written inside, the only person I want to see is Jet? But you told, you'd also told me that. You told me that you didn't want to see me. <laughs> you said next time I don't want to see, I want to see him on his own. I remember you asking Dr. Pfeffer, did didn't he say that all you've got to do is reassure? Yeah. But it's like, how do you... But that's actually, no, that was... That was the thing that made it all a lot easier. Before having that advice, it was really hard because there was a, always a dilemma of like, you know, how do you react to these delusions? Do you say they're not real? Do you go along with them? Because like, I think they have it with mm. people with dementia and stuff. That it's like, you know, where you think, is it more distressing to tell them that it's uh, to not dismantle true, or do you it? just go with it? Because sure. actually maybe it's easier for the person at the time. Sure. What advice would you give maybe to any partners that are going through something where their their partner's struggling or going through something? Um, probably to be vocal about it. I think speaking to other people, getting ad advice. And actually, I think that is what also helped me with the whole thing is, although I kept my kind of circle close of the you know I didn't speak to a lot of people that I would have normally spoken to all the time and kind of like but had a few people that I spoke to like about because I knew it was too much to keep like updating people or relaying you know it was the it was madness like the whole situation so people that understood roughly what was going on so I didn't have to completely start again every time but then also the acknowledgement that actually, so I started seeing a therapist pretty much straight away when things were really bad when you were in the hospital. And actually that for me, you just have to have an outlet for yourself because otherwise it's, it gets messy. Ultimately, and I think you do as well, it's like we can look back, you know, we're only three years away from it for it. A year and a half, you've been fully better, I'd say. The recovery, that's like a whole other story, isn't it? Because that's not even the start of the... Our story is maybe a like best outcome, almost. Like Obviously, it wasn't what... You wouldn't want anyone to go through that. But to only be that far away from it... Obviously, there's probably there still are like elements, and it is still part of our, a big part of our lives. I'm grateful for it. Though. Yeah, yeah. In lots of ways, like I, uh, the way you've dealt with it, and the way you've recovered from it, and the way you've learnt from it, and the way you've, you know, essentially by being so open about it, it's helped a lot of other people. And by being like that, like that, that you've, it's also helped you recover. And we've, you know, managed to somehow 
come through it unscathed as a, our relationship. Jet's the happiest kid ever. But it is a massive thing and it definitely derailed our life, you know, for, for a certain amount of time. It was amazing to, to have got through it. And with your book and everything, it's just, that's an incredible achievement. And to have written it in pretty much within that first year of recovering, you'd finished the book by the time I'd even managed to, like, check my head of actually even, uh, like, come back to reality myself. <laughs> and you'd, like, I kind of, like, opened my eyes. I was like, oh, you've actually written, <laughs> like, a whole novel. It saved my life, though, that book you know it did and I think at first we were worried weren't we but then I think when you saw how that what it did and how much it that yeah. and being close to jet but whenever I meet women and their partners that can't remind themselves of what happened it's like I do encourage them to talk about it mm. it's been proven that living your recovery talking about your recovery being active mm. with your recovery is less chance of relapse mm. it helps others and helping others does actually help yourself you know but actually you do end up getting bored of it yeah, yeah. you can like bore yourself Without exaggerating, we spent over a year talking about it in every conversation we had. Hundred percent. Whether it would be about how. But that's your patience, though, Hugo, because that patience, that space that I got to unravel that, definitely has left me with minimum scars because I have felt like I have thrashed it around, and you really provided like a space for me to like throw myself around in like a sort of rehearsal space where I could throw stuff at the wall and you'd walk in and I'd be, I don't know, <laughs> rolling around or doing whatever I needed to do to get that out. I remember you Pages once saying to me, yeah, right. exactly. And I remember once saying to you like, but I haven't been there. I haven't been a good mum. And I remember you going, what are you talking about? You've done all your mum duties. You know, you still were up. You still did the night feeds. You still do all that stuff. And that's, true, yeah. that's the thing you forget. You think, oh, but I wasn't there because it wasn't going how you expected it to be. You weren't wearing, I wasn't wearing this long white flowy dress of long hair and flowers, you know, studied in my hair with washing outside and baking fresh bread. But I was still doing it. You know, I was still being a mum and... It, you did, yeah. And especially, your, and especially your relationship with Jet was so close in... And that was part of that process wasn't it so it was like so you weren't detached for very long at all no we really weren't because that was the hard week as well do you remember I was brought home but I wasn't allowed to be on my own with Jet for a week yeah and that was horrible but you were never a dick about that and actually to be honest with you to be totally frank like I didn't really want to be on my own with him I didn't trust yeah. myself but also I didn't feel safe I just literally wanted to zombie out on the sofa and literally be a zombie mum like yeah. and just exist but you then, I remember you let me do the changes. You let me do the changes, the night feeds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, but like anytime he needed that that extra bit, you know, he needed me. He fell over. He would call me. Yeah. And he does still now. I feel, feel like I always understood that part of your recovery was your was you and him, wasn't it? Are you proud of yourself? Of myself. <laughs> I guess so. I'm just happy that we're here now and to not feel like like I don't feel you never feel like totally safe from anything but the fact that it just feels like we've actually got back to a place of like calm thank you for getting us better thank you I for being on it. zombie mom you did it um, for waiting so patiently <laughs> <laughs> I not, love you Hugo patiently thank you so much <laughs> I love you. I love you. The end. 
Can you say, I love you, mummy? I love you, mummy. I love you. I love you, mummy. <laughs> can you say zombie? Can you say zombie mum? Zombie mama. Jet, can you say all podcast platforms? All podcast platforms. Can you say available on all pod all available on available available on all and all podcast podcast platforms platforms. Can you say thank you for listening? Thank you for listening. if you have been affected by any of the themes in this program head to the episode description for resources and helplines zombie mum was produced by b duncan with original music by hugo white it was mastered by rob fincham the executive producer was hannah walker brown this is a broccoli production Next week, I'm talking to Lem Sassay. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. The one thing a lot of people were looking for is, what did you do wrong, Lem? What did you do to the foster parents for them to put you into care? What did you do in the children's homes that you were moved from one place to another? And I didn't do anything. I was a normal, bright child who was broken down slowly but surely by a system which could not live up to its name, and its name was care, by foster parents who could not live up to the name, which was as parents.